You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is an Australian freelance writer, blogger, and author with more than 20 years professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 36 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here today with Alison Tate. We're your co-hosts of this podcast. Alison, how are you? I'm I'm very well, thanks, Valerie. I'm I'm actually sitting here. I've I've been I've taken procrasty pup for a walk this morning, <laughs> and now I'm online ordering all manner of you know accoutrement for my procrasty pup. What are you ordering? Worming tablets. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Flea stuff. I thought you were going to say something glamorous like, you know, a Gucci jacket or... Oh, no. I know. Know. I have to... I'm sorry, Val, but my, my dog will never wear a jacket. <laughs> Why? Um, because I, I'm, I'm just not... Well, my procrastinate cup, Rambo, is sitting... don't wear jackets in well, my world. Well, uh-uh. Rambo is sitting on my lap and he is wearing a very lovely ensemble. I know. <laughs> I've seen Rambo in his sweaters and he looks very, very cute and I can yes. understand why he might need them because he is so small and so old. But uh, Procrasty Pup would probably like look very, very unhappily at me should I attempt to put a sweater on him. <laughs> well, apart from ordering worming tablets, what have you been up to this week? <laughs> well, I've been very, very busy and not very busy at all. So I've been very, very busy online because my book has been out there and it's all very exciting and I'm answering questionnaires and writing blog posts and all that sort of stuff. It's like there's this book thing happening in a completely alternate universe to where I actually am because in my real life I'm ordering worming tablets and going to swimming lessons. So (laughs) I think that's the thing, you know, with publishing, you sort of life just carries on regardless really even though it's all going on without you. Yes, indeed. It's very interesting. And what about you? What have you been up to? Let's see. Well, I've just actually come out of a team meeting here at the Australian Writers' Centre and, you know, got a lot of a lot of things happening. A uh, couple of them are um, actually we have a great course with uh, Bernadette Foley, who is a former editor at Hachette, and she's joined our team at the Australian Writers' Centre and she's doing a course in Sydney called What Publishers Want. And it's a Saturday morning course, so, you know, you can kind of get it all in one hit and bombard Bernadette with all your questions. Um, so that's been going really well. Lots of interest Well, I've there. got a little bit of a secret to tell you about that, Val, because I've interviewed Bernadette and that interview will be on our podcast next week. And Woo-hoo! I'm here to tell you that I sat her on a chair and shone bright lights in her eyes <laughs> and asked her all the interrogative questions that people, that writers want to know about, about that. Yeah. So that's something to look forward to. It was a great conversation. I can already tell it's a must listen. Um, And the other thing is that uh, we just got news that we are going to have some giveaways. So if you haven't signed up to the newsletter, go to writerscentre.com.au where you can sign up and we're doing giveaways every single week. And um, coming up very soon will be um, we've got giveaways for both Mac and Android for the Hemingway app. So, um, yeah, that should be fun because that's the app that we've spoken about in the past on our app pick in this podcast where it helps you make your writing bold and clear, it says. So it highlights long, complex sentences. You know, it will it will sa- it will mention when a sentence is too dense and it needs to be either split or removed. It highlights, you know, if you've got too many adverbs in a particular colour. Um, so yeah, that's uh, just a little taste of some of the giveaways that we've got coming up in the newsletter. So I highly recommend that you sign up if you haven't already done so. I love getting my newsletter from the Writers' Centre. I'm glad you said that. I do. I get it every Wednesday. I love it. I open it up. There's always something interesting in there. I think that Dean that writes the newsletter does a fantastic job. So there you are. Hi, Dean. Big shout out. 
Yes, his Q&As are becoming the stuff of legend that we are getting more <laughs> and more uh, emails from people just, uh, you know, cracking themselves up at um, Dean's Q&As. But um, let's move on. What's been happening in the world of writing and publishing and blogging this week? Well, quite serendipitously, I was in, in light of our conversation last week about copy blogger leaving Facebook, I was trawling around the internet and I came across a post on the Indie Writer's Guide, which is writing and publishing tips by writers for writers. And it's called Why Should Authors Care About Google Plus? And I thought to myself, how can we overlook this one given our conversation? Um, And basically it goes through some of the main advantages of being on Google Plus for writers. And one of those is that you can more easily direct your content via circles. So Google Plus allows you to put people into different circles. And if you put up different content, you can choose the circles that actually see that content and Mm. those that don't, which is great. Um, You can write longer posts on Google Plus. And I actually did a a post on my own um, blog last year, which is part of my social media for writers series, which is about Google Plus. And it outlines the fact that one of the tips for Google Plus is that you do write longer posts, that you actually put the main bulk of the information into Google Plus because it's not Mm. about necessarily just driving traffic to your blog. It's about creating engagement on Google Plus. And the reason for that is that posting your content there increases the Google ranking of your post and therefore your visibility, which of course is what it's all about. So I guess the thing with it is, is that it is Google. And I don't believe that if you really um, are serious about, you know, trying to build your profile online, you can't overlook anything that's related to Google. Mm. So what do you do? What do you think about all that, Val? Well, I must admit I am on Google Plus and I do post regularly. I don't get a great deal of engagement on it compared to Twitter and Facebook. Yeah. Um, and I think obviously that's also because I am not as engaged on Google Plus as yeah. I am on those other platforms. True. So it's something that almost I kind of I'm doing it because of the reason that, that you've just said. Yeah. I, I can't. I kind of think I can't ignore it because it's Google. I don't yep. want to just diss it, yep. but I'm not necessarily seeing a huge payoff or anything like that. And sure, no. I get some responses and some comments and things like that, but certainly nowhere near the level of engagement of the other platforms. So I don't know. It's kind of like I'm doing it just in case, but not really. <laughs> well, and I, and to be honest with you, I'm probably the same. Like I think it's um, I like I'm there and I do put put stuff up. I'm, I am engaging. I do get some engagement around the different things that I do. Um, and I have people that I only see there. I see them regularly there and I only see them there. I don't see them on Twitter. I don't see them on Facebook or anything like that. Um, so yeah, again, I guess I'm the same, but I, I just feel good. I'm just, all I can think in my head is Google. So I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I got nothing, but read the posts because I think it is definitely worth having a look at the benefits of it and about why you might be there. Mm. An interesting thing that popped up uh, in relation to, you know, social media and being on different platforms, on my phone the other day as I was just lying there watching TV or something, um, was the LinkedIn app called Connected. I'm not even sure how the notification came up, but I downloaded it onto my phone. and um, As you do. Uh, yes. And it is what I Im- imagine uh, Tinder to be like. <laughs> Oh, what? Yeah. I mean, I haven't got the Tinder app. However, um, I, I know that with Tinder you swipe and then you see different people and you can rate them and stuff like that. Um, but it's kind of like that with this new LinkedIn app. You you swipe pe- pe- you swipe different people that LinkedIn suggests that you might like to connect with. <laughs> really? Yeah. Like speed dating for business people. Exactly. So I networking. Yeah. So I found myself um, swiping and then going, "Oh, they look interesting. I'll connect." So I imagine that's why Tinder is so addictive because it's so easy. They they you know um, suggest to you people that are they think are connected to you in some other way or that you might know or that you know are like minded or have similar interests. And yeah, I'm I've got it in front of me right now. I'm swiping away. It's telling me what's. <laughs> happening are you cheating on me with other people <laughs> speaking to you 
<laughs> well, you know. <laughs> um, what's the etiquette? What is the etiquette of this? Yeah, I suppose I'll put the phone down. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to something completely different. And that is um, a post in The Guardian, which is an analysis, and it did a map of Australian language. Because, you know, when you live in, um, and it was something that we certainly had a lot of uh, when we were, you know, at Clio and, you know, in the women's magazine magazine days, when... You, we're, we're all based in Sydney. So many of the women's magazines are based in Sydney and it's very easy to get East Coast centric and it's very easy to put smack bang on the cover of the magazine, you know, top 10 cozies to buy this summer. But in actual fact, they're not cozies in other states. They're completely different words. And it's important to, especially when you're writing articles or writing for a national publication, to understand that some of the words you use are different in other states. So I believe it's bathers in Victoria. Um, it's probably togs somewhere as well. And another thing that the Guardian uh, Post points out is that um, scallops their potato cakes somewhere else. Well, I have to say I was there for the Twitter conversation that kicked that article off and mm. it started off with there's a, a very, very funny tweeter who goes under the name of Brockle Snitch, mm. um, Rebecca Shaw, and she was dissing this whole notion that they were potato cakes. There's no cake in them. They're this, they're that. They're, everyone knows they're a scallop. There was this whole... And it started a massive war. And the next thing we were talking, cozies versus swimmers versus togs. And also ports versus suitcases. Oh, ports. Because I know. Queensland, they're ports, you know. Yes. And, and it was very, very – and people were incredibly, you know, defensive about their state word. Mm. <laughs> and it, was, it all got very, very interesting. But um, I remember studying for my HSC that chosen for me for my third unit of English was um, Strine. Australian language <laughs> and that this conversation about regional variations was really quite funny but it's even in the it's even in pronunciations like oh yeah my um my cousins live in far north Queensland and we used to go and visit them on a regular basis and every time we went up there you know we'd be talking about the pool and the school and the, all this sort of stuff mm. and they were thinking we were hilarious that we spoke with a plum in our mouth because <laughs> it wasn't the pool and the school and the <laughs> So we used to have these, you know, my uncle, I have an uncle who particularly likes to sledge and he used to, you know, constantly have a go at us about this plum that we had in our mouths. But I think it's, um, you know, we all live in one country, but it's big. You know, oh, and yeah. You don't realise how big it is until you drive it. And so you can oh, completely yeah. understand how, um, you know, how words change. And as you know, I've been spending a lot of time in Victoria lately and I used to get so confused. People would talk about, you know, going going and having a look at all the hard rubbish and I'm like, what the hell is hard rubbish? <laughs> <laughs> it's council pickup. It owns the stuff you chuck out and the council picks up. Apparently it's hard rubbish there. Rubbish and it's too hard to deal with? Is that what it is? Well, I thought also thought it was a little bit strange that they going that they were going around to you know, like I said, oh, where'd you get that great letter? And they go, oh, hard rubbish. And that's because yeah, they've and gone around scavenging for the yeah, yeah. hard rubbish. And I'm thinking, have you ever oh. done that? Lots of people do that. You don't have to be in Victoria to go scavenging for <laughs> good stuff in the council picker. <laughs> I must admit. Oh, well, I did pick, actually, you're right. I did pick up a sewing machine off the side of the road because it was a vintage retro one. And there you go. Of course, it's, and it took, it, ca- it weighed a ton and it's still sitting in my garage doing absolutely nothing. But anyway, <laughs> um, yes, there are many different uh, words. Bubbler. I asked Twitter yesterday what their word for bubbler was because in New South Wales it's bubbler, I reckon. Yeah. yeah. Um, but apparently in Queensland and Victoria they say drinking fountain Ooh. or drinking trough. <laughs> drinking trough. Yeah, which is a bit gross. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> I think we might leave that one right there. Val. Yes. Anyway. Um, what else is happening in the world of writing and blogging, publishing? Okay, so I came across a great, there's a very excellent blog um, written by a, a US woman by the name of Jane Friedman and um, it's the tagline is helping authors and publishers flourish in the digital age and I have to say that it's constantly 
always can stop constantly and consistently good content. Like really have a look because she um, she gets together some of the best posts that I've seen in publishing for a long time. And the story that she's got on there this week is called How to Tell If Your Story Idea is Mediocre and How to Improve It. Now, it's written from the perspective of screenwriting, but I actually think it would fit any – I mean, I was looking at it thinking – Oh, I I know some freelance writers that should read this as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's basically about, you know, whether or not you're actually pitching an idea or are you pitching something that like a subject. Um, So she's talking about um, the guest poster on this particular uh, post is Laurie Shear, who is a former vice president of programming for women's entertainment. So she knows what she's talking about. She's seen a lot of story ideas and things pitched to her. And she is basically giving you the three principles or three questions that developmental executives and editors will ask all the time when Mm. they're evaluating evaluating material. Why make this? Why make this now? Mm. And who cares? (laughs) <laughs> and I think at the end of the day, whether you're pitching a story idea yep. for a magazine, writing or, or, you know, sending out a submission for a novel or whatever you're doing, you have to keep these things in mind. Like why does this, why, why are we going to make this? Why mm. would we do this? Why does this need to be done now? And does anyone actually care if we make this movie? And she gives an example of, um, of, a, of a, a story that was pitched, you know, of a woman who has a desire that at 43 that she wants to have a baby. So that was one pitch. That was the Mm. whole story. And then she goes on to say, um, like, why, what what would you need to do to that to make it work? So I think it's worth having a read of the the post because it was really, really interesting. But, I mean, you and I have talked before about this idea that for freelance writers of pitching a subject and not an idea, not an Mm. article. Mm. Um, But um, is it, you know, like... Have you seen anything? Other, is there anything else you'd like to add to this, Val? I think the who cares one is great. <laughs> really? You know, it it's so, so important. True. And particularly not just in screenwriting as, you know, what this post is about, but at, in freelancing definitely people think of these ideas and it's like I just don't care. And no, I reckon none of my friends would care either. And if we're your target market, then you've lost us completely. It, yeah. The who cares one is 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 a really important one because when you are pitching a story idea to a particular demographic or magazine, you've got to incorporate, you've, it's got to be relevant to as many of them as possible, mm. not a tiny, tiny sliver and it just so happens that you're interested in it, you know, for mm. whatever reason. So it's not necessarily that, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to can the idea, but you certainly need to tweak it to make it relevant to more people you know so maybe it's not if it's about a medical condition it might not impact all of the readership but it you might need to emphasize it could impact someone you know and this is what you can do to help them or something like that you know so I think the who cares one is a really good one yeah, I think so too. So if you happen to get, uh, you know, you figure all of those things out, I, I think you have an interesting post on what happens if you get multiple offers. Ah, uh, yes. So Janet Reid is a literary, a US literary agent who also runs a great blog. She's, I mean, the thing is, you know, there is so much information out there. Mm. It's just a matter of, you know, finding it. Mm. So she answers a question on her blog this week, what do I do with multiple offers? And the question comes from a writer who had been to a writer's conference had managed to get up enough guts to pitch her um, manuscript and had got had got two requests for this manuscript. Mm-hmm. So she's on her way home and she's sending it out and then she sits on the plane and she goes, what do I do if they both want the book? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, seriously, <laughs> pop, pop the champagne. <laughs> yes. But once you've done that, like it's a matter of what do I do now? And the, I guess the thing is she, um, what Janet talks about is uh, yay for you, mm. but also like the kinds of questions that you need to ask your ag- the, the, the agents because um, in this particular instance this she was pitching to four agents. So because as she points out, like you need to come up with, a, with who, which of these agents you might work with best. Yeah. And to do that you need to basically um, – you need to ask some questions. You need to interview them. I mean, if you're in a position where you've got multiple offers, then lucky you ask those people some questions, you know, everything from, and she gives you a list, 
How long does the agency representation last? Mm. Is that agent the um, part of an agency or a sole practitioner? Um, is your agent going to be with you for the long haul? Does your agent really want to be a writer? <laughs> you know, what sorts of things like is your agent online? And then, you know, just that general conversation of how do you get on with this person? Is this person going to be someone that you feel comfortable ringing up and saying, I'm having a bad day, help me through this? You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think that that's... Um, that's something that's really worth having a read of if you're in a position at the moment where you're, you know, sending out submissions or whatever it is that you're doing. And I think an interesting point that she makes is, you know, when she says there's a list of questions to ask prospective agents, most of them are designed, as you've said, to weed out the ne'er-do-wells and you are sure you sure want to do that. Attendance at a conference does not mean an agent is good. Mm. And that is not only really important to understand but also just because somebody has a business card that says agent yeah, that's <laughs> doesn't right. necessarily mean they're good either because I've come across these people and, you know, they've got a nice little business card but um, I've never heard of them from a bar of soap. They've had, yeah. They have no runs on the board. They have no real web presence. They've got a Hotmail account and, you know, it's, 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 you, you start asking some questions there. So just because somebody hands you a business card and says they're an agent, don't get that excited till you do some due diligence. That's right. Do your so, research. Exactly. So... Hmm. There have been some, um, you know, posts from time to time about how, uh, you know, written by authors uh, saying how readers can help support their favourite authors. And I love those posts because I think that's really important. If you want your author to keep on writing books, you want to support them. And there's some great suggestions on how to do that. So I actually decided to write a post that is a little bit different. And that is four things authors can do to promote their book. So, and an excellent post it is. <laughs> thank you. So not just um, begging readers to buy their book, but some really proactive things to position themselves um, in a way that, you know, readers want to buy their book. They don't have to be asked. So um, very quickly, one, number one, provide a way for your fans to connect with you because, you know, if it's it's, look, if you're super famous, if you're already JK Rowling and you don't need you don't need people to buy more books because you're already a bestseller many times over, then fine, go and be a recluse and write in your garret and send out a book every now and then. However, if you're an emerging writer or you actually want to increase your book sales, I highly recommend that you provide them a way, whether that's through your website, an email address or um, a uh, or your Twitter or Facebook are very harmless ways that people can connect with you. You know, it's not it's, these days with technology, you don't your your privacy is not invaded. You don't have to provide your phone number or your actual home address. You can, you know, let people connect with you in other ways. So number one, provide people a way to connect with you. And when they do connect with you, number two, respond to mm. fans. So even if it's favoriting a tweet or just saying thank you, how hard is it to, to, to tweet back thank you? Um, but importantly, and this isn't really done enough in my opinion, number three is encourage your publishers to do the same. If people are out there waxing lyrical about your book from your publisher, encourage your publishers um, to, you know, acknowledge that people have have gone out of their way to write a blog post and, or a glowing review or, or something like that as well. And finally, and we will put this link in the show notes, I've said number four, in my opinion, don't behave like a charity case. Because, you know, I come across some authors who behave like charity cases and really they, they start pleading for people to buy it and no one wants to be guilted into buying your book. So people want to support your book and they want to be able to buy it because it's good or because they like you, not because they feel sorry for you, in my opinion. So no, that's right. There you go. That's my little, right, you know, Val's soapbox for the week. Yes. <laughs> But yes, that's on the Writer Centre blog, the Australian Writer Centre blog. We'll put the link in the show notes. But what's happening in the world of blogs this well, week? We've talked a lot about blogs this week. We've discussed a whole length, a lot of different blogs that um, have got fantastic con uh, content. But um, I just wanted to do a shout out to writerunboxed.com. It's a, it's a bit of a sort of a group blog um, and it's, again, another fantastic source of information for 
um, for aspiring writers. Um, it's generally like, there's a lot of guest posts. So there's a lot of terrific guest posts from different people all the time. Mm. And it's a, it, it's something, it's a place I visit a lot. And I just, yeah, it was basically just a, you're doing a great job, guys, and everyone should go and have a look. Great. WriterUnboxed.com. WriterUnboxed.com. Yeah. Check it Link out. in the show notes. Yeah. So who's our writer in residence this week? Well, this week I had the pleasure of interviewing the most fabulous, and she really is quite fabulous, uh, <laughs> Kirsten Galliott, who is the editor of InStyle magazine. Um, and I've known Kirsten for a long time. We worked together at Clio back in the day, mm. and um, she has gone on to do amazingly fabulous things because she's very fashionable and she wears fabulous shoes and she's one of the smartest chicks I know. <laughs> um, so we had a really, really good talk about um about freelancers, um, about working with freelancers. She worked at the Sydney Morning Herald for a long time and edited Sydney Magazine. And so she has a lot of experience with working with freelancers across different styles of publication. And we had a little bit of a talk about what freelancers can do to really make a career for themselves. Today we're talking with Kirsten Galliott, the editor of InStyle Magazine, who has more than 20 years publishing experience across newspapers and magazines. So welcome, Kirsten. Hi, Alison. How are you? I'm extremely well. Um, so let's start with you. How did you get your start in the publishing industry? Oh, goodness. Um, look, I think that <laughs> my first big break. <laughs> Sadly, I can. Um, I think my first big break, I did sort of various bits and pieces in radio and whatnot and TV, but my first big break was getting a job on Who Weekly, as it was known back then. And um, it was back then, it was a black and white magazine, all black and white photos, and they did a real mix of human interest stories plus celebrity plus breaking news stories, very very different to the Who magazine incarnation now. Yeah. And I started there as an editorial assistant, um, so basically glorified PA, yep. and worked my way up. I stayed there for five and a half years, and sort of by the time I left Who, I was you know, sort of senior features writer, I guess. So did you do a, a degree before you sort of, you said you did a bit of radio and a bit of TV, like had you done a degree at university to do that? Yeah, I did a, a degree in mass communications at Macquarie University. Okay, all right. So what were the three key lessons you learned as a young features writer, you know, in that experience of working your way up through Who? Oh, look, I think the most important lesson I learned at Who, and, and back then, and I'm sure it's still the same case today, we had very experienced senior editors and editors yeah. who, you know, your story would go through sort of three editing phases and there'd be a lot of questions and lots of comments and things underlined and rewritten. And I think the first big lesson I learned was not to be too precious about my writing. Yes. You know, I think people do get caught up in the ego of, oh, this is my sentence and I crafted it and that's the best way it should. Whereas if someone fresh comes in and goes, oh, I don't really think that's working. We should, we could twist it around like this. And what about if you added this? You know, writing can be a collaborative process. And the best freelancers I've worked with and the best writers I've worked with are people who are quite open to that sort of creative process and working together. And, you know, of course, you know, any editor and writer, well, there should always be a little, little bit of argy-bargy and that's fine. Um, and there should you should always be prepared to sort of, you know, say when you really feel strongly about something. But I think that collaborative process is really important. Yeah. So have you had any interviews? Because I'd imagine like when you're sort of going out to interview people or, you know, phoning people to interview for who, you're going to be talking to some fairly big names. Did you have to get over the – was there a certain amount of anxiety around that? Oh, look, not really for me. I mean, when I was, you know, first – I think I remember my second feature story I ever did um, – was on Ivor Davies from Ice House. Right. And, you know, back then he was quite a big star and it was my first, I think I was writing 2,000 odd words, so it was a big deal for me as mm. a young journalist um, who'd only written sort of small pieces before. Um, I remember I was a little bit anxious about that, but I always, you know, I always I put on his music and just sort of tried to calm down. And, and also the thing for me is always if you've really done your research and you, you're going in there knowing a lot about that person, then you can't really go wrong. Right. So, you're, so you prepare for the I was quite confident even then. Oh, I, I always over-prepared. And I found time and time again, if, you can, if you're impressing that person by, because you know so much about them, they take you more seriously as a journalist. Right. And I think the best journalists, you know, I had a, I had a conversation with a journalist this morning who's doing some background on a, a story for um, a major publication not attached to InStyle. Um, and... 
she knew just in getting background from me on her story before she even interviews her main player, I could tell she knew so much about that subject already. And she's only into day two of her research. Right. But it's that kind of attention to detail. You know, we're all busy. We're all trying to fit too much into one day. But if you can really do your research, read quirky bits and pieces about the, the person and add that into your interview, then it just gives you so much more colour and you just get a much better result. Well, that's right. It gives you the opportunity to ask a question perhaps that hasn't been asked before as well, doesn't it? If you oh, look, actually crucial. know some stuff, yeah. If you go in there and just do the rote interview where they've been, they're being asked you know, questions they've been asked a million times before, you're going to get the same boring answers you've read in all the clips. Yeah. And who wants that? Not me. <laughs> Definitely not well, me. And I, as an editor, I don't want to see that either, I can tell you. <laughs> so have you had any interviews that have been like complete disasters? I don't think I've ever had a complete disaster, but certainly in my who days, you know, you are interviewing, you know, I was interviewing some pretty big name celebrities, you know, A-list Hollywood actors who are coming out to Australia on movie tours. Yeah. And I do remember, all right, I'll tell you, might as well. I do remember interviewing um, Keanu Reeves and he, he didn't want to be there. He didn't really... You know, he had the publicist sitting there, which, you know, was always a no-no in my books. You had to sort of try and get rid of the publicist. Um, and I just remember it was hard. In the end, I got some good stuff from him because, again, I had an, I'd done some pre-research where I'd spoken to Hugo Weaving because he was obviously starring with Hugo in The Matrix and Hugo gave me some good background. Yep. So I was able to ask some quite fresh stuff of um, Keanu. And I thought, look, I got some good quotes, but, um, but I remember it was, it was hard work. Yeah, okay. So you managed to salvage it because you'd done your research and you knew, you know, you had some interesting angles. Yeah, and thank God I'd done that because otherwise it would have been a complete disaster. <laughs> so is there a... Yeah, and, and also you're in a, you're in a churn there. You're, you're journalist number seven of yeah. 20 or whatever it is. So I mean, these, been... these days probably you're sitting with 10 other journalists at a table. Yeah. You yeah. might not even be getting that one-on-one, but, yeah. um, you know, that's, I mean, I guess that in style, that's the kind of thing... We're always, you know, trying to make sure. Well, we're not going to do a junket. We're not going to do a roundtable interview. How are we going to make sure that our journalists get some proper time where the person might actually engage and give us an interesting story and give some interesting anecdotes? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, is there a is there a memorable story, like in a good way, story? That, you know, what's the most memorable story in a good way that you've done? Anything that really stands out for you? Oh, you know, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's age, but I can, I never, I always forget who I've interviewed. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone else, all other journalists I know seem to be able to pull out these great stories. And I, you know, I'll be, someone will mention someone in the play. I go, oh yeah, I think I interviewed them once. Oh yeah, I did. I did this. Um, No, look, I think for me, it's the whole experience as a journalist. It's, you know, it's not just the end result. It's not just the interview. It's when it all comes together. I mean, I've I've been really lucky. I've interviewed some amazing people and gone different places. I mean, I remember a funny story I did. I went and spent um, a day with Les Hiddens, who was a bush tucker man. Oh, yeah. And he lived in on Magnetic Island off Townsville. And I remember going up there and, you know, I hadn't been to Magnetic Island since I was a child. Spent a whole day with him and his family and... They're the kind of those sorts of real moments where you actually immersed in their life for a day. Yeah. They're the kinds of things that I really love. And yeah. getting that quality time with someone yeah. so that you can actually build a proper story. It's not just a 20-minute interview. Yeah. You're spending a whole day with them. I mean, so, I think that's what has always made Vanity Fair so amazing yeah. is that they're spending so much time with the subject and they get great stories as a result. Yeah. It's that, that The time is the thing that nobody seems to have anymore, isn't it? Yeah, and that's where publicists, I think, just get so wrong. They think you can do stuff over a phone or you can, you know, we get so many say, oh, can't we, we just do this over email? Well, no, we can't. We're not going to get a good result. You're not going to be happy. We're not going to be happy. Like, let's do it properly. Yeah. So as an editor, I mean, are you still doing any writing at all? No, not really. Um, I did a little bit, little bits and pieces after, oh, I did lots, had lots of steps between um, who and I ended up working at Fairfax for 10 years. Yeah. Um, and and I, I've come from Fairfax to Instar where I've been for two years. Um, when I was at Fairfax, I did a bit of writing, um, again, even when I was in, in an editing capacity. But um, no, I don't get to write as much as I'd love anymore. You know, I write my editor's letter, that's about it. <laughs> that is something I think that you, um, 
that when you sort of make that jump into an editor role or those sort of upper echelons of the editing um, end of any publication, you do take a step away from the writing, don't you? You have to kind of make a decision about if that's what you want to do. Like if you want to be a writer, you can't really edit a major publication as well, can you? I don't think so because if, you, if you're going to write when you're an editor, you're not dedicating the time to writing as you should. Yeah. You're kind of trying to fit it in around other jobs um, instead of, you know, giving that subject, you know, the attention that it deserves. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was at Sydney Magazine for almost six years editing that. And I guess even though I wasn't actually writing myself, you know, I was spending, you know, I might spend two days editing a 4,000-word story. Yeah. So you are immersed in the words and you are immersed in the writing. Um, it's just very different, you know, instead of actually starting with that blank page. So and I've got you... great admiration for writers starting from that blank page because I remember how hard it can be. <laughs> Oh, yes, I still look at it regularly, that blank page. Mm. So let's talk about a typical day for you then. Is there such a thing? Um, now it's, it's in style? Yeah. Um, no, not really. Um, I'm always – I feel very blessed if I have a day in the office. Right. Um, because oh, cause I'm, often, I'm often out and about. Um, I have a lot of – you know, I guess my job is divided up into sort of four or five areas now. Um, I sort of – yes, I deal with a magazine, but I'm also overseeing – you know, our digital strategy, so our online, our social media, um, obviously advertising, um, wow. you know, checking in with clients all the time, and that's what takes me out of the office a lot. Yeah. Um, overseeing marketing, um, and then, you know, this week this week and next week I'm hosting four events. <laughs> so you sort of, you know, the, the game has changed, and whereas once I, I used to spend day after day in an office looking at 4,000-word features, um, I'm sort of chasing my tail the whole time here. Wow. It must be exhausting. Um, it, I would say it's very relentless. Yeah. Um, I love it. I love the pace. But um, honestly, if I have, a, I have a day in the office today and I'm just absolutely in heaven. Because <laughs> <laughs> I can sit in front of my computer, I can catch up with my staff, I can, you know, read some finals, I can, you know, I'm not doing it externally. Yeah, fair enough. So, yeah. so yeah. as an editor... When you're looking at sort of freelance writers, whether that be at InStyle or during your time at Fairfax or whatever, what what are you looking for in a freelance writer? In a writer or in the work that they they're both. presenting to me? I guess both of those things. Yeah. Um, I think from the writer, I'm looking for someone who's quite hungry. Yeah. And who has a real passion for the the particular story they're pitching. Yeah. And that they've really thought about the angles and how that story is tailored for that publication. Yeah. So the appropriateness of the story and, and you know, I, I used to get a lot of pictures at the Sydney Magazine particularly and so nine times out of ten I would say I just got this sort of, oh, I'd like to do a story on X. Oh. And it was never really very well thought out. Right. And for yeah. me, I always, occasionally I'd get a, okay, so I want to do a story on this and this is how my angle and this would be sort of the right, you know, the intro I would think about and these are the people I'd interview and these are sorts of subjects I'd cover off and, you know, and then, and then we'd start a conversation. Right. If, you know, obviously if the writer had, you know, I knew of them and knew they were capable of delivering the work. So is so that important, that was, knowing that they're going to be able to deliver the work for you? Well, I think it depends what publication you're pitching to. Yes. I mean, I was working for the Sydney Morning Herald on their, you know, premium magazine and yes. you know, there was a lot of expectation that the writing would be, you know, absolutely world class. Yes. Um, and we did. We spent, you know, I would only run three to four features in that magazine and they would. There'd be one that would be three and a half thousand words. There'd be one that was 2,000. There'd be one yep. that was, you know, two and a half. Yeah. Um, these were long reads and there was definitely an expectation from me, from our readers, from management that they would be the best quality they could be. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't have taken someone who didn't have, you know, great publishing experience yep. okay. on the Sydney magazine. Yeah. But I've worked in other publications where you might give, you know, someone who hasn't had as much, as much experience a go if they came up with that great idea and were willing to work with you and to make it as good as it could be. Okay. So where do you think most freelancers go wrong then? They just basically go, I want to do a story on X without telling you why it's going to work for you? I think there's that. I think that sometimes they haven't done their research on the publication yeah. um, and that the story might not even be vaguely appropriate for the publication. Um, I think that they haven't, sometimes they might not, because they, if they don't have that relationship with the publication, they might not know that four weeks ago we just did that exact same story. Yeah. 
Um, I found there were lots of sort of basic errors that freelancers made during my time at Fairfax that, you know, it is kind of roll your eyes territory. Oh, okay. All right. And regularly, all the time, basically. All the time. All right. But then, you know, I remember, you know, one who um, emailed me and had an amazing idea. Um, he He just came up with this fantastic idea that was completely fresh and hadn't been done before. And I didn't know him, um, but I, you know, we, you know, looked into him and thought, oh, okay, I think we think maybe this guy could do it. He had, you know, he had good writing credentials, um, and we got him to do the story. He did an amazing job. So, but again, he gave me the best pitch. It was a fresh idea. He thought about all the steps, um, and he gave me the whole picture of how that story would be. And so- he'd actually done some research. He'd made some phone calls and. Yeah, he he did he'd done a great job. So it's interesting too because like different editors um, that I've spoken to like their pitches in different ways. Like um, one editor I spoke to wants no more than three sentences. If you can't sum the story up in three sentences, you don't understand the angle well enough. Whereas others want almost like an outline before you know they'll they'll even open the conversation with you about the idea. It's I guess that is is well, that that's tricky. I guess because that's where it gets tricky from a freelancer's perspective because you're trying to write a, a story pitch completely blind yes. and not knowing. Yes, that's you right. Know, but I think I, that... I always sort of pride myself on the fact, and I did at Fairfax, and I hope that none of your your listeners will um, contradict <laughs> me here. But I always tried to respond. Yeah. Um. To everyone. Yeah. Um. And. You know, if someone came back to me and asked for advice, then I would give it. Right. So for me, so all, all I can say is for me, when I was at Fairfax, and it's less of a situation here at Instar because I have a team of 30. Yeah. Um, but at Fairfax, if someone said, if someone had written to me and said, I've got this idea for you, but I'd like to know, would you prefer a quick grab or a proper outline? I would have been happy to write back and said, proper outline, please. Okay, right. But look, I know everyone's different yeah. and... That's, I guess, one of the challenges for freelancers. It is one of the challenges, and I think it's also it's about the persistence of it too. Because sometimes, you know, making going that extra step and asking the question um, as to, you know, can I outline this story for you, or you know, something like that, yeah, can some, actually be and the some difference. That would absolutely piss them off to do that as well. Exactly. So I, pre- I, I appreciate the contradictory nature of it. I know it's a difficult thing, but I guess it's, you know, I guess persistence is the key to it. As far as well, it didn't work for that one. Let's try somewhere else yeah, with absolutely. a new pitch with a completely different angle for that publication. Um, and let's face it, a great idea is a great idea. Yeah. And even if it's not 100% right for my publication, if I see it's a great idea, I'd go, oh, look, when I was at Fairfax, I would sometimes go, oh, that that's a great idea. It's not going to work for me, but I think you should go and talk to X about it. Yeah. Okay. Because who doesn't want to see a great idea get get into a story and to bet that our readers can read if not for me, but for someone else. That's right. All right, so let's just talk a little bit about um, uh, about fashion writing because, um, you know, I have worked at Vogue and Clio and various places and I know Instyle is very obviously very fashion-based. It's quite a specific skill, isn't it, actually, fashion writing? What, mm. what do you think are the main components of a good fashion story, so to speak? I've come to – I mean, I've only been in InStyle for two years and I've dabbled in fashion over the years and had bits, have, quite, have had quite a bit to do with fashion over the years, but I've never worked on an exclusive fashion publication before InStyle. Yeah. And the thing that I didn't appreciate before I came here was how much of a skill it is. Yeah. Just to write, and I'm not kidding, the, the write-offs, yeah. the captions with the advice, those quirky little things about, you know, a certain length of skirt, because – the fact is, you've got to find a fresh way to say the same thing over and over again. Yeah, you're basically talking. You're giving, you know, you're giving advice. I mean, it'll be the advice will differ depending on what the outfits are. But you're trying to find different words for dresses and skirts and <laughs> sequins and embroidery and you know, and just to put a fresh spin on it. Yeah. And um, we have our, our fashion news editor here writes so many pages in the magazine. I can't tell you, and right. I think she does an extraordinary job in making it fresh and snappy and appropriate for my audience. Which is but not it's a skill. <laughs> and also, let's face it, lots of fashion journalism is boring. Yeah. You know? I'm not supposed to say that. No, but a lot of it, a lot of it out there is. And yeah. so it's our job to make – because fashion should be fun and yeah. fashion should be accessible. And also at InStyle, what we want, really want to do is give people advice 
So yeah. how to put outfits together and make sure that you're not just looking at a pretty picture because my readers can find pretty pictures everywhere these days. Yeah. It's about giving them that outfit and here's some advice that you can take and use in your own life. Yeah. So but that's what we really aim to do. Yeah. We have to be useful. Yeah, fair enough. So people have been talking about the death of magazines for, for a very long time now. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, they've been talking about it for at least 10 years and I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> so breathing. Um, look, all I can tell you is that InStyle is tracking very nicely. We are so steady month after month after month. Um, when I look back at my past six issues, they are just steady as she goes, right. which is really gratifying because it's not the case everywhere. I look at, you know, we get this market scan data and I can see all my competitors around me and see what's happening to them. Um, but I think the fact is that you've got to be with magazines, you've got to find your niche yeah. and you've got to provide something that people can't get everywhere else. Yeah. Um, I think those magazines that try to be everything to all people, I do think that's tricky territory yeah. because you've got to have a service, you've got to have something you know, home titles at the moment are going through the roof. Yeah. They're doing so well and it's because they just have this great package. They're talking to one specific audience who's hungry for information about homewares, home trends, how to renovate their kitchen or whatever it is. Yeah. For us at InStyle, we know we're quite niche. Um, we aren't trying to be, you know, absolutely, you know, so intimidating and high, 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 only high fashion, like, you yep. know, a Vogue and Harper's Bazaar, yep. because I think that can be too intimidating. Yep. And we're not trying to be a lifestyle magazine with bits of fashion thrown in, like some of the other titles. Yep. We're very specific, and, we know, and I know who my reader is. Right. And I think that's where magazines will survive. If you know your reader, you know what she needs, and how can we best deliver that to her? Yeah. Then you've got a strong proposition and you've got a very loyal audience. That's right. We had an event on Monday night with 110 readers. Um, we did a forum with um, Claudia Carvin, um, the actress, yep. um, Elizabeth Bottoff, the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, and Jodie Fox, who founded Shoes of Prey, the online shoes website. Yep. And it was so great to see all those women, those readers, and they looked exactly like what I always think they look like. And when I talk to them, they're exactly who they, who I always say they are. And that's really gratifying because if I know my market, everything I create is for her. Yeah. Okay. That and that's sense. where magazines will survive. All right. So then let's, um, let's round this off with your top three tips for would-be freelance writers. In terms of? When they sit down to write? In terms of either when they sit down to write, when they sit down to pitch, like people who are trying to make their mark in freelance writing and build a career, what would what would your top three tips for them be? Okay, so my first tip would be do all the research, like know your subject inside out to be, you know, a mini encyclopedia on that subject and yep. so that you can espouse it. Know what to cut out Yeah. because... You know, the one thing that drives editors crazy is, you know, asking for a 2,000-word article and getting a 4,000-word article. Mm. You should be able to, you know, take a step away, take a day's break, step away from it and come back to it and know what doesn't work and what, or what is extraneous. Um, and for me, load it up with anecdotes. You know, I often think that where freelancers or writers in general often go wrong is they don't start with that, that anecdote that's going to really draw you into the story. Right. Like time... If I, if I think back of all the stories I've edited, and God knows, you know, there's probably thousands, I think about the intro is often where I go back to a writer and go, you're not, you're not grabbing me. Yeah. And I always say to people, if, if you, you've done your interview, you've spent all this time with that person, you've done all your research, you go to dinner with a friend and they go, they go tell me something about, you know, or tell me about your interview. What are the things that you're telling your friend? What's the one thing that is your dinner party story? Yeah. That's pretty much, generally speaking, what you should be leading with. Right. So, make, like, because you're impressing your friends with your story and you want to impress those readers as well. Yeah. With whether it's some great insight, it's the time they broke down and cried, or it just might be something from their childhood that they tell you, but some anecdote or insight into that person that makes a reader go, oh, wow, I've got to keep reading this story. Yeah. So, work on your hook. Work on your hook. And also, you know, you know, think, and make sure your kick is great as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Often people say it sort of floats away at the end. Come yeah. on, slam it. You've you've had someone with you on a journey for, you know, two and a half thousand words. Make them love the end as well. Yeah. Give them a satisfactory ending. <laughs> yeah, definitely. 
All right. Well, I think we've reached a satisfactory ending. So thank you so much for your time today, Kirsten, and um, good luck with all those many thousand million events and other things that you've got coming up. <laughs> Oh, my pleasure, Alison. I love talking to you. Thank you. You've made me all passionate about writing again. So there you go. Okay. Bye. Thank you. I love chatting to, you know, magazine and newspaper types because it's all a little bit of gossip in there as well, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And it's just, you know, like, gosh, why not? It's fun. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) We love it. Exactly. What's our app pick for the week? Well, probably not fun, actually, now that I think about it. But I I first read about this app. It's called Write or Die. Hmm. And that's the simple choice that you have. Um, And I first read about it in The Guardian when David Nichols wrote a story about it because he tried it. Um, So David Nichols, sorry, no, he did not write the post. David Nichols is the novelist who wrote the um, book, us. That's his latest book. Mm-hmm. And the Pink Fibro Book Club is actually reading Us this month. And so far, right. feedback on that has been amazing. But when he sat down to initially write that book, he tried using a piece of software called Write or Die. And basically, what happens <laughs> okay. is that you put in a potential word count, you put in the number of minutes that you have, mm-hmm. and you basically you sit down and you start to write. Now, if you stop writing during that time, you get a small grace period. But if you stop writing, it starts deleting words Ah! one at a time. (laughs) So the words that you have written start disappearing before your very eyes. So it really is, it's like writing with a virtual gun to your head because if you're not writing, you die and nobody wants to write lose the words that they're writing. So the um, author of the post was actually Leo Benedictus and he gave it a crack. So he basically sat down. He um, put in that he was going to write 400 words in one hour and then he activated the evil setting. Um, And he said it seemed like a fun thing to do but in fact it means that if I stop typing even for a couple of seconds the screen goes pink, then puce, then red, then crimson, then the last word on the document disappears, then the next, then the next. So he said it was actually just so much pressure. It was ridiculous. And even Nichols said, the the novelist said, that in the end he had to bin the 35,000 words that he had written like that because he just didn't feel like they were working at all Um, but they weren't wasted because a few months you know in just a few months after that he rewrote the same idea in the first person to produce a novel that was long listed for the Booker Prize right so you know it's like maybe it was just a a, a case of intense first draft pressure Um, but yeah so um, we'll put a link in the show notes to the actual app writeordie.com as well as to the story Um, if you're somebody who is feeling like you need to really be kicked along maybe (laughs) it would work well for NaNoWriMo I don't know I mean to me it just sounds like way too intense but you know give it a go and if you do give it a go then please email us and let us know what you think of it email us at podcast at writercenter.com.au and what what a bizarre motivational tool I mean I guess it's kind of gamifying your writing in a sense because I guess so there's this consequence do you not think you just end up writing a whole lot of drivel though, just so that you could just keep going forward? I, I yeah, don't know. but that's this, that's this the case with writing generally. You do have to, <laughs> you know, expel the crap in right. order to get right. to the drivel. gold. <laughs> so true. It's it's a bit like I used to use this thing called the email game, and um, it helps you get through your emails at a rate of knots. And um, I must go back to it actually. Yeah, and um, it's well, what it is is it it you. you you have to process, you know, you have to go through these emails and if you spend more than, I can't remember what it is, say two minutes on an email, it's it does a countdown. and So it does a countdown on how long you spend on an email. So you, you, you're, and you're, you're meant to reply as soon as possible. And if you go over your limit, it starts going in the red. It's a really angry red and it starts counting backwards and you get points for, you know, doing your email faster. And I used to go for that little smiley face or that little flower or whatever it is that it rewarded me with thinking yeah <laughs> so you know it does something to your brain that you mm. you want to um achieve that stupid little badge or icon drives you crazy and it does drive you a bit crazy yeah. as well i'm not sure i might try right or die just for fun but anyway um our working writers tip this week is something that we are often asked because i came across a post called 
writing fees, you know what you're worth. And it's from Angela Booth's Fab Freelance Writing Blog. We'll put the link in the show notes. But basically, one of the things that she's talking about is that, you know, you it says newer freelance writers tend to worry about their writing fees. Now, I just want to have a, a you know caveat here in that this doesn't refer necessarily to the word rate that you get from a publication. This is particularly if you are doing, say, corporate writing or copywriting, you know, where you have a client. It's not about editorial, in, in my opinion. So she says there are no standard rates. You charge what you charge. And I believe that in a sense as well, because people often say, well, what's the standard hourly rate? And mm. it is how long is a piece of string? And an interesting thing that she says is she says, never, ever charge by the hour. Charge by the project. No one needs to know your hourly rate except you. Being reticent about your hourly rate avoids sticker shock. If you can complete a a project in three hours where another writer might take six, good for you. What are your thoughts on that about whether you should charge by the hour or the day or the project? Obviously referring to the corporate writing and copywriting, not to editorial. I tend to charge by the project. Mm-hmm. I tend to agree with her from that perspective. I I look at, um, you know, what, I mean, you know, again, I've been doing it for quite a long time. So I get, and I, you get a sense, you, you do get a sense of an industry standard yes. uh, over time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think about what I what I want to be paid to do the work and then I yes. charge that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Or I put it this way, I do my best to charge that. I mean, you, like sometimes it's a matter of, what, okay, what's your budget? What are you willing to pay to get it done? Because yeah. at the end of the day that does factor into it as well. You need to know your markets. Different markets are different. But, yeah, I do tend to charge by the project, Yeah, I have to say, um, because I just think that um, – yeah, I mean, I work really, really quickly, mm. really quickly, mm. and sometimes I think, well, you know, you have to charge what you're worth. Absolutely. I think that the biggest mistake people make is actually asking these questions before they've even got the brief from the client. Mm. And I think one of the most useful things I ever learnt very early, thankfully, was to ask a billion questions before even quoting Absolutely. And Get just, an idea of what yeah. you're in for. And the kind of person you're working with and whether yes. they're, you know, faffy or whether they're yes. really make decisions quickly or whether they're going to go um and ah a lot. And so I think that asking a billion questions to get as much information as physically possible before you even quote is important because I think that the people who fail to do that, um, I've, I've met some writers who, you know, will get, get a, give an estimate of um, without having much information but then the whole job blows out for whatever reason because that's life, that just happens and then they resent having to do the rest or Mm. worse, they just surprise the client with a massive invoice at the Mm. end saying, well, I did those hours but that's Mm. just not the right way to do business. No, it's not. Uh, Not that you shouldn't be paid for it but you need to keep your client updated every step of the way, not give them a big surprise bill at the end. No, just because That's right. you think it's worth it. Absolutely. Um, so, yes, I think that one of the most important things is not even so much, um, yeah, what, what what are you worth or what do you charge is get a, the, the super clear brief from the start and then you will actually have a lot more confidence in, in quoting after that. You won't even need to ask the question. No, that's right. It's very true. So that brings us to the end of our podcast this week. What are you up to this coming week, Al? Well, at the end of this week, I am heading off to Sydney where I will be presenting to four different schools in two days um, about the Mapmaker Chronicles. So I'm very, very glad that I've been practising my school's talks in my local area um, to give me a bit more confidence because there's nothing quite like fronting up to 200 kids, let me tell you. Um, So I will be, yeah, so that's what I'll be doing um, to keep myself amused in the next week or so. And I think after that, I'll be pretty happy to be home hiding in my study again for a little while. (laughs) (laughs) And you, Val, what are you up to? What am I up to? Well, I'm in Sydney at the moment and um, as you know, last week I went to Melbourne to catch up with some of our fabulous graduates but uh, this week I'm going to Melbourne again. So a little bit of Melbourne travel this week. Um, I've got a few meetings but also doing a photo shoot and, um, you know, just a few things to catch up on really. 
What are you shooting? Yeah, um, myself. Oh, how come? <laughs> well, you know, my photos are a little bit old. So fortunately, um, I'm doing a shoot with Gina Militia, who I first met Oh, 20-something years ago, back at Girlfriend magazine even. And then she subsequently shot for us at Cleo. And she's um, we've done a lot of work together. Like, um, you know, we photographed probably every celebrity in Australia and various supermodels and, you know, too many Fantastic. eligible bachelors for Cleo and that sort of thing. <laughs> so it's always great fun to catch up with Gina. Um, um, I'll let you know how it goes because I always get a bit of gossip as well. Maybe you can post one of your new photos for us, Val, when you get it. We'd like to see the work. Maybe, yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you. For, thank you for listening. We've been really grateful for all of your emails and your shout-outs on LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook. Really appreciate it. If you'd like us to answer a question, email us podcast at writerscentre.com.au and our show notes can be found at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast. You'll find Alison at? At alisontate.com. And I'm at valeriekoo.com and we look forward to chatting to you next week. (laughs) 